How's everybody doing today? That last song we sang, anybody uncomfortable with that song? Thank you. Are Christians uncomfortable with that song? Some are. Um, There are Christians today who want a bloodless religion, who want to do away with the blood. And I think after today, you're going to know why. If, 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 if that's you, you are literally stepping outside of Christianity. So let me just tell you the game plan. We're, we're entering a season that Christians have historically called Lent. Uh, Lent, what, what's Lent? Anybody know? Wow, we're really removed from the Christian calendar, aren't we? 40 days leading up to what? Actually, it leads up to Good Friday. And then, of course, two days later, three days later, but it's not three days, it's two days. Don't, let's not go down there right now, but um, <laughs> I know we've all thought that before, haven't we? Um, is, is Easter, and uh, Lent literally is, is the Latin word for spring. I mean, just look outside right now. It is, it's, it's common. And there's this sense of anticipation when everything is going to come back to life. Resurrection is going to occur in, in this dormant world that we are right now, and it's awesome. But that also points to the greater resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that lives in us, that raises up our dormant lives. And so to prepare for this, the church historically has set aside 40 days 40 days when God's people would take an inventory of their life, do some spring cleaning, look in all the nooks and crannies, and say, you know what, this right here, this thing in my life, whether it's a screen, whether it's food, whether it's a form of entertainment, whether it's um, an addiction, it's, God, I'm saying no to that, so I can say a greater yes to you. I challenge our church to step into that. This season. Let God do some spring cleaning in your life. And and as we participate in this part of the Christian calendar, we're going to look at God's calendar. God has a calendar. He gave his people a calendar, whether you know it or not, and he filled it with these holidays, holidays, as we call them. Um, and, and, And I've noticed that so few Christians know so little about God's calendar. Um, If they do, they just relegate it as Jewish and therefore irrelevant. But God's word gives us eight specific holidays. Holidays that he designed. Holidays that he shaped. Now what I love about these holidays, these holidays tell the whole story of God. And because the whole story of God is about Christ, they ooze Christ. And, and the other thing I love about these holidays is they're, they're not just these boring, lifeless rituals. They're called feasts. They're parties. And this should tell us something about God. It, it means that God wants us to know him not just through a sermon, not just through doctrine, but God wants us to know him 
through party, through celebration, through food. Because this whole thing is existential. It is something to be experienced. All right, with that being said, let's read our text. Leviticus 23. Feel the joy in your souls. We go to Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Third book of the Bible. Leviticus 23 lays out uh, the eight feasts that God instructs. We're going to be looking at Leviticus 23, 1 to 5. We love to stand for God's word, so if you can stand right now, please stand. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. And then these next few verses are what we're going to really look at today. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies that you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. And then on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days, you must eat bread without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. On the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is God's word. You can be seated. So two times in verse 2 and verse 4, God says, these are my feasts. So what we need to understand is, is these aren't just special days that evolved out of Jewish history, kind of like our 4th of July, or like our Memorial Day, or like our President's Day, or like Christmas, or like Easter. There's nothing from God where God designed and God shaped and then said, here's Christmas, here's Easter, here's the 4th of July. Uh-uh. Those are, those are holidays that we have constructed. But these holidays, God says, these are, these are my feasts. There's two words that I'd love for you to circle in your Bibles or, or clauses. Um, the first is appointed festivals, and the second is sacred assembly, because these words show up a lot in Leviticus 23. I'll start with uh, the word festival or appointed festival, as some of your translations put it. Um, in, in the original language, the Hebrew word moed. Moed simply means appointment. Now just ask yourself, what does every appointment require? Time and place. When and where. So Moed is used 45 times in the book of Leviticus. 41 times it specifies the where, the place. Namely the tent of appointment. Uh, 
the place is God's tent, which will later become God's house. But now the four times that it's used in Leviticus 23, it specifies when. But I want us to hear what God is saying. God is saying, these are my appointments. So Israelites, get out your calendar because I'm going to schedule these God-shaped, God-ordained, God-instructed divine appointments that you're to have with me. I don't know what you think about this, but we always think that we schedule time with God, not realizing that God schedules time with us. He wants to meet with us. So that's what Leviticus 23 does. It just lays out God's calendar, God's uh, appointments with us. Now the second word that I want you to circle is, or the clause is, is assembly or sacred assembly. It's in verse two. It's also used eight times in Leviticus 23. Now I find this to be incredible, what this word actually means. It means rehearsal or sacred rehearsal. Think about a wedding. Every wedding has a rehearsal. Everyone who is in the wedding party must be there because that rehearsal mirrors the wedding that is to come. It prepares them for that. But that rehearsal is not the wedding. So think about this. The feasts are not the wedding. Just the rehearsal. And through the rehearsal, God is preparing his people for the main event. And then when you stop and think about what these feasts celebrate, like things like God's stunning power that he displays against the Egyptian gods, or or God parting the Red Sea, or God tabernacling with his people. To think that there's something greater coming. That all these things and these festivals, these feasts that I want you to celebrate aren't celebrating the main event, but there's something better coming. And so what the rabbis said, as they looked at the text, the something greater that is yet to come, Messiah will bring it. Now the thought that I love to have about this, knowing that when God instructs these feasts, these rehearsals, hundreds upon hundreds of years, God's people have been rehearsing the coming of Messiah, Christ. Beautiful. Yet so many Christians know so little about this. Now the greatest of these rehearsals, festivals, feasts, is Passover. And look at verse five. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight because that's when days began. Days began in the evening. When the sun went down, it was the next day. So the Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. Passover is just a one-day feast. 
falls on the Hebrew month of, of Nisan. It's actually not the first month, but God makes it the first month because it's just kind of like when you come to know Christ, you sometimes call that your spiritual birthday. And that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, this month now is going to become the month. And on the 14th, um, you're going to celebrate Passover. And then if you look at verse 6, on the next day, the 15th, you're going to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that feast is going to last seven days. And then if you go down to verses 10 and 11, there's another feast that's also a part of um, these two feasts. On the day following Sabbath, which is Sunday, following Passover. And that's the Feast of First Fruits. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I just want to show you this PowerPoint and beware. It, it, it's, um, it's cheesy, definitely, okay? But I don't have time to make them, so I just get them. I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but let me ask this question. Why did Jesus die in Passover? Do you know the answer to that question? Why was Jesus buried at the start of unleavened bread? I mean, if you know what, 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 what Jewish people to this day pray on that day, God, would you bring forth life from the earth? <laughs> God is literally going into the earth being buried. And why on the feast of first fruits is Jesus raised? And then when you count 50 days later, you have another feast called Pentecost. And why is that the day when God sends his spirit? I'm just whetting your appetite. Again, the feasts tell the whole story of God. And we have to know something about these feasts, I think, to understand why God designed it this way. What does Passover celebrate? It celebrates the most divining moment in the Jewish story. So when God's people are living as slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh... And God provides Exodus, a way out, a way out of Egypt, a way out of slavery, a way out of chaos, and not just a way out, but also a way in, a way into God, a, a way into uh, being born again, a way into uh, being God's bride. I mean, literally, the slave becomes a princess. And then you have to ask yourself this question, well, how does God provide this way out? And it's through a judgment day. I mean, God unleashes a judgment day on Egypt like a hot butter or hot knife through, through butter. And here's what we need to know. This judgment day didn't just fall on the Egyptians so that the uh, Israelites could go free God's judgment day fell on the whole land. Egyptian, Israelite, any foreigner, stranger, even the animals, it came. Now remember what God's judgment is. God's judgment is God unleashing his judge justice. 
It's when God in a moment decides, I want to put everything to rights. I want to do away with all evil. And I want to make the world right. That's God's judgment. In fact, just for a second, imagine if God would do that right now. Imagine right now if God would purge this world of all evil. How good does that sound? So judgment is a good thing until you start to get even this this honest with yourself. Because where does evil lie? It's not just out there. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it as well as every, anyone. He said, the line that separates good and evil passes not through states, blue states, red states, nor between classes, nor between races, nor between political par- parties. The line that separates good and evil passes through every human heart. Who can stand? Before the Lord, when he comes to judge. No one, no one. That's why even Moses is horrified when God says, look, Moses, I'm going to unleash a judgment day. But he's only horrified until then God shares with him gospel. God says, look, this judgment day, through it, Israel's going to be spared. They're going to be set free. They're going to be redeemed. The slave is going to become a princess. And this is where you ask the question, what is it? What is it that saves Israel? Because it's not like God is looking down and saying, bad Egyptians, good Hebrews. It's going to fall on everybody. What saves Israel? A lamb. A lamb, a meek, mild, helpless lamb. In fact, let's go to the story that, that this feast, Passover, celebrates. Go to, the, to your Bibles, Exodus 12. Fifty-three, if you have a Bible like mine. Love that sound of the scripture pages turning. Uh, Verse 3, the whole community of Israel, that on the 10th of that month, each man, this is God speaking, is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people that there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animal you choose must be a one-year-old male without defect, and you must take them from your own flock and take care of them until the 14th day of the month. You pick them at, tenth, at the 10th day, you take care of them until the, that lamb until the 14th day. When all the members of the community of Israel must then take the lamb and slaughter them at twilight. And then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they are then to eat the lamb. 
mean, if you ask a Jew what the meaning of salvation is, they'll say it's this right here. Exodus, Passover. And Passover is all about the lamb. And here God gives very specific instruction in regards to the lamb. First of all, on the 10th day of that month, each person or each man is to take a lamb for his household. One lamb per family. And that's different even than the way that we think about salvation in our world. We think of salvation in individualistic terms. Um, It's about me and God, but not in that world. In that world, it's seen in terms of the family. And another thing that I really want to highlight here is whose responsibility is it to get the lamb? It's the fathers, not the pastors, not the priests, not the president. It's the father's responsibility to get that lamb for his family, and then where is this gonna be celebrated? Not in the synagogue, not in the church, in the home. Because it's through family and home that is still God's primary vehicle by which the kingdom of heaven comes in and by which it's unleashed in our world. We have to recapture this today. Another thing I want you to notice is verse four. If your family is too small for one lamb, then join with your neighbor because not one piece of this lamb is to be wasted. But more importantly, this is a lamb that's to be shared with your neighbors. And then look at verse five. It's not just any lamb that you can pick. You can't go to your flocks and, 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 and look for the worst lamb. God says, I want your best lamb, one that is perfect in every way. Now, if you want to, so many of you guys are, including myself, we're so removed from, from the earth, uh, from, from food and all of that. I mean, my kids, I don't even think, know that chicken is actually chicken. Uh, so let me just show you what a one-year-old lamb looks like. I'm done preaching today. <laughs> In fact, I've told them to keep this up for the rest of the sermon. I want you to take that in. I want you to take that in. Because that's God's instruction to his his people. Verse six, he says, you shall keep it for four days. You know what the word keep in Hebrew is? It's, It's hayah. You know what hayah means? It means to become. God says, I want you to become that lamb. For the next four days, I want that lamb to be brought into your home. I want every family member to spend time with that lamb, to hold that lamb, to look in that lamb's eyes, to get their hearts attached to that lamb because that lamb is your salvation. That lamb is standing in your place, in our place. Four days later, at twilight, God instructs them 
Take that lamb and slaughter it. Another instruction, God says none of its bones are to be broken. And then here's the, the, the important instruction. Verse 7, God says make sure you collect all the blood or as much blood as you can and get out a paintbrush. In fact, God even specifies the kind of paintbrush they're to use. It's a hyssop branch. You guys, all these details. Not a bone to be broken. Hyssop branch. A pure and spotless, per- perfect lamb. All show up in our Good Friday story in the Gospels. And they're to take that blood then, and I'm sure this is a family experience. They all take turns painting that blood around the door frame of their home. Just painting it. And then in verse 8, the verse we didn't read, this lamb is to be eaten. They are eating this animal that they just spent four days getting to know. Now, that might not mean anything to you. I'll tell you just a quick story about Smokey. (laughs) I grew up on 20 acres, and yet my, my family did not know a thing about how to take care of animals, but we pretended to. We bought cows. We bought cows, and... My brother and I, these cows became like pets to us. There'd be times when I'd go in the barn and I'd see that cow's head going up and down like this because my brother would be scratching it. The problem is we couldn't keep our cows in the fences, so eventually we had to kill one of them. And of course, my dad processed the meat and we had smoky burgers, smoky steaks, And every time we were eating it, there was this weird feeling that we were eating that cow. (laughs) You guys, God's salvation is not just something that we are to believe. It's something we're to eat. It's something we're to become. We don't just believe the gospel. We are to become the gospel. And God not only instructs a menu that goes alongside of this, that whole menu helps tell tell the story, but he also instructs them specifically on how they're to eat this lamb. Uh, Look at verse 11. It says, this is how you you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked in into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. You are to eat this in a hurry because it is the Lord's Passover. Passover. In fact, that clause, it is the Lord's Passover, is the same clause in our text in Leviticus 23, verse 5. It says, it is the Lord's Passover. Now, Passover is our English word, but in Hebrew, Passover is the word Pesach. Pesach simply means protection or protective covering. Another place where, where, where Pesach is found in the Bible, where it just flushes out the meaning of this word, is Isaiah 3, verse 5 where it says again, sorry, that's Jeremiah 31, verse 5. Marked it wrong. Here's another uh, place where Pesach is used. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will Pesach it. 
He will protect it and rescue it. And so it's this picture of, 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 of this mother bird with her wings coming around and, and shielding and protecting her young. Same thing Jesus says the last week of his life. He's looking at Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to be like a mother bird just stretching my wings over you to protect you. Pesach, protect Passover. And so the Lord's Passover is the Lord's protection. It's, it, it's, it's, it's the Lord's shelter. And what specifically provides the Lord's protection? It's a lamp. And it's blood. Painted over your life. That's what it says in verse 23 of Exodus 12. In fact, even if you look at the previous verse in Exodus 22, God says, do not go outside your house on this night that I bring my judgment. And the reason they can't go outside their house is because to leave the house means you're leaving God's protection, his, his, his shielding. Whole thing is about a lamb. Now here's where we have to ask the question, why a lamb? And as badly as I want to run this uh, forward to Jesus, we first need to go back because the first hints of a lamb are all the way back in Eden after Adam and Eve sinned. What they need in that moment is God's protection. They need covering because God's coming to judge them. He says, Adam and Eve, where are you? And in one of the most incredible moments in the biblical story, rather than God crushing them, covers them. And we have a good idea that he covers them. We know it's with animal skins, but we, we, we have a good idea that it's, that it, that it's the, the skin of, an, uh, of a lamb because of the next story. The next story is about Cain and Abel, and, and one sacrifice is rejected. The other sacrifice offered to the Lord is accepted, and it's the one of the flocks and herds of Abel. But does anybody know the first usage of the word lamb in the Bible? Because first usage matters. Genesis 22. When God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to take him to Moriah and offer him there to me as a sacrifice. <laughs> God, are you a monster? And what I want us to know when we, when we read something like that is what Abraham heard. He did not hear God saying, hey, Abraham, I want you to go out and murder your son. What Abraham heard is he heard God saying to him, Abraham, three days is a judgment day. Time for you to pay up. Because the ancients had a different view or a different emphasis on God than what we have today. More and more, we want to limit God to this aspect of God, which is so true. 
It's the song we sung, God, you're a good, good, gracious father. And we stop there not realizing that there's this other aspect of God which is holy, holy, holy. And the ancients lived in this place in their view of God. God, you are holy. And I'm a debtor. And so the ancients didn't look at their life and say, God, you owe me. You owe me a good life. You owe me this. You owe me that. The ancients looked at it and said, God, I owe you something as great as my firstborn son. I'm a debtor. And see, the whole law of, of, of primogenitor uh, proceeded from this. Uh, the, the law of primogenitor is, is a fancy word for the law of the firstborn. Um, it's this idea that God gets the first of everything, which is why in the Bible, God gets the first of the flocks, he gets the first of the fields, the first fruits, and it's why he also gets the firstborn son, which is why when you go to the next chapter in Exodus uh, 13, Exodus 13 verse 1 begins with God saying, the life of your firstborn son belongs to me. I get the firstborn. But then God gives them this gracious means by which they can purchase that firstborn back from God. But their idea, their, their concept of God and then looking at themselves, God is holy and I'm a debtor. Abraham, time to pay up. And as Abraham is walking with his son, his son is unaware of the kind of sacrifice that God has asked Abraham to do. At some point in the journey, asks his father, hey, dad, we have everything for the sacrifice, but where's the lamb? And that's the first time the word lamb is used in the, in the Bible. And I can just picture Abraham in this horrified state, then his son asking the question, what do I tell him? And his answer is, son, God will provide the lamb. And we know in that story that that's exactly what God does. God comes down in that moment of sacrifice, Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, and says, don't, uh-uh. That's not your spot, Isaac. That's my spot. And God provided a lamb. He provided a, a substitute for Abraham's son so that Isaac's life could be spared. And now we're in, in Exodus 12. Years later, God is again saying, a judgment is coming, my judgment is coming down. A judgment day is at hand. It's time to pay up. Not just Egypt, but all the land, every person living in it. All of you owe me something greater than your own son. And what we need to see in this story, the thing that, that saves Israel, why Israel spa spared, it's not because Israel's morally and spiritually superior to Egyptians. Because the Bible teaches us that no one is righteous. 
No Israelite, no Egyptian, no Christian, no Muslim, no Jew, no atheist. No one is righteous. We are all debtors. God says to all of us, the life of the firstborn is mine. You owe me. And yet God, in his perfect justice and grace, provides a way in Exodus. And it's in these words in Exodus 12 when God says, when I see the blood, I will protect you. It's almost like with one hand, God's justice is coming down, and then with his other hand, he is protecting and shielding his people from the very justice he is unleashing. And see, blood in the ancient world represents life. That's why the text says that the life of any living thing is in the blood. And that's why I want you to see the picture that what's painted on the door frames of, of, of their house is the life, the life of that lamb. So that God's people could be spared. I mean, just imagine that night. Imagine this lamb being a part of your family for four days, and, and now it comes time to slit the, the lamb's throat. I can just imagine what my kids would do, especially when they were younger. They'd be like, don't you dare, Dad. You cannot do that. And I'd have to explain to them, look, it's either the lamb or it's us. And then that experience of actually slitting its throat, collecting its blood, preparing it to be eaten, the blood being painted on the doorpost of the house. And then to wake up the next morning and to realize that in every home in Egypt, there is either a dead firstborn son or a dead lamb. What God wants them to do from here on out is he wants every year for, for them to immerse themselves in, in remembering the salvation of God, his deliverance. And he doesn't just give them doctrines to study. He doesn't just give them sermons that they need to listen to. He gives them a festival. He gives them a feast. He gives them a, a party. He gives them a meal. The meal is centered on the lamb. And he says, I want you to eat this. I want you to drink this. I want you to take this in. I want you to experience it. Knowing that it's all pointing forward. It's still just a rehearsal to a greater lamb leading to a greater salvation, a greater redemption. Imagine the joy 2,000 years ago when you heard John the Baptist say, look, there he is, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you want to know why, why, why Jesus came to this world, he came to be our Passover lamb. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to just put you in my arms, to protect you, to shield you, to be your Passover lamb. Is it coincidence then that Good Friday falls on Passover? 
Now, God's been rehearsing and rehearsing through his people this coming. Because 2,000 years ago, on that Good Friday, that again was a judgment day. Do you know that? When God unleashed his plagues and his darkness and everything, but rather than unleashing it upon the world, he unleashed all of it. All his justice for all sin. On the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's through this judgment day on Good Friday that we are spared, that we are delivered. As Romans 8 says, for God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely so that you and I would be spared. Or John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave to us his only son. Or 1 Peter 1, verse 18, for you know that it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from that empty way of life that was handed down to you by your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for your sake. Think about that. Before the creation of the world, God knew that his good, beautiful, perfect creation would fall into ruin through Adam and Eve, through us and all the sin of our lives. And he knew that the only way that he could make it all right to set it free from its bondage to decay, to to deliver it from evil, was by becoming a lamb. A slaughtered lamb. This is our story. This is our song. Jesus, our Savior. And see, Passover, even today, still points us forward. It still rehearses a greater judgment yet to come, as we learned in Revelation. And here's the question. When God's judgment day comes, what side will you be on? Will it crush you? Or will it spare you? Will it destroy you? Or will it save you? Your only hope, my only hope, is that we are covered in the blood of the Lamb. God says, when I see the blood covering you, I will spare you. Let's pray. God, as we already sung, it's your blood that speaks a better word. It speaks the only word. 
in terms of our salvation. And so, God, we, we, we don't hide ourselves in our goodness. We don't hide ourselves in, in, in the things that we perform and give to you. We are debtors in and of ourselves. Debtors. And so we hide in the shelter of your wings. And we're covered in the protection of your blood, Jesus. We trust that. We place our life in that. And if there's anyone here today, God, who is still living for themselves, by themselves, through themselves, for the sake of themselves, that is the way of death. God, may they, may they see, open the eyes of their heart to see first that they're debtors, but that you've provided a way. And that way is Christ, the Lamb of God. You guys, Passover is not a somber event. It is a party and a celebration that's filled with hallelujahs. Hallelujah. All right? I purposely didn't have communion today. Because communion is a simplified, minimalized down to a little this and that of a Passover meal. Every time we take communion, we're, take, we're celebrating Passover. We're taking in our lamb. Fathers, the next time in your home when you're feasting and enjoying good food and good wine and laughing, in that moment, stand up and say all the good things in life are because of Christ and pick up a cup and say this represents his blood which was shed for us and take some bread and say this is his body broken for us and pass it and eat it and drink it do it today after church if you're with friends because that's Passover it's enjoying all the good things of life in a celebrative place and context. And in that moment, say, God, thank you. And our hearts are most grateful for Christ, the Lamb of God, who paid it all. Amen. Have a great week.